John Dar Neal of the man, the mountain goats of extra glens of being awesome, an amazing writer. More on that in a second. But first, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can head over to the email address, turn it a punk podcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, turned out a punk. There's a, those pages actually are run by my brother and show producer, Tristan Abraham. You send him a message. He'll get the message to me. We can communicate that way. You can also find me on various forms of social media at Left for Damien. Uh, if you would like to support the show, the best way to do that is by subscribing to it and rating it on your pa- podcast platform of choice uh, or telling all your friends. Let everyone you know know that there's this podcast going on that you dig and, you know, we spread it that way. Speaking of support, this show would not be possible without the kind, loving, generous support from my good friends, my good, good pals at Vans and House of Vans, who came on board a couple years ago, just said, do your podcast. Do your podcast the way you want to do it, and we just want to support you doing it. So they did, and I have, and it's been awesome. Uh, we will continue to do stuff with Vans. We're going to be doing stuff at the House of Vans this summer, and yeah, like, love all those people. Thank you so much to Vans for believing in this podcast, you know, supporting this thing. Speaking of believing... And supporting, I want to thank all of you. I'm shocked at how many of you, because I've been not the best uh, about promoting it so far, but I, I would like to thank all of you, all the Patreon people. Wow, this has been unbelievable. Like, I'm really shocked at how many of you have come on board and supported this thing. I've got your packages ready to go. Uh, we're going to be doing one of the big live shows later on this week where I'm going to put up the information of how you can watch it. I'm going to get on, play some records. You can talk to me. Uh, if you don't, you can listen to it later. <laughs> if you don't want to talk to me, I mean, you can listen to it later. Just hear the music. I'll be talking about records, talking about some podcast stuff. You can ask me questions. It's, it's kind of meant to be like a, you know, like a real laid back radio show, like a radio show on the chillest college radio station, you know, you know, there might be some cannabis smoking going on. I'm, I'm not going to guarantee it, but I'm I'm going to say that there's a possibility that there's going to be some cannabis smoking going on. Like all great college radio. Not all great college radio, but a lot of great college radio. Fueled by Bud. Whew. So that's later on this week. Uh, also, there's the packages are going to be going out very soon for those of you that signed up for that tier. I've got Lego minifigs, shirts, records, all sorts of cool stuff. So please check out that Patreon Uh Patreon.com slash turn out a punk or turn out a punk slash Patreon. Go to Patreon, search turn out a punk, and we will come up. Speaking of coming up, though, I can't believe I'll get to finally say this. Coming up in a few, few short weeks on May 22nd, The Wrestlers comes to Viceland. Now, this is the show that I've been <laughs> working on for like. Oh my God, close to a decade now, like at least seven years, six years, seven years of begging and pleading to do stuff about wrestling. And then finally did something about wrestling and then begging and pleading to do the show and then waiting for the show to come out. Anyway, it is over. The wait is finally over. You don't have to hear me yammer on about it anymore. It can, it can live on its own merit. And I promise you, if you like wrestling, I'm going to do right by you. And if you don't like wrestling, check this show out anyway, because it's it's bigger than wrestling, the stuff we're talking about. Nothing's bigger than wrestling. <laughs> Let me get that first out of the way. Nothing's bigger than wrestling. But even if you don't think you're a wrestling fan, you are impacted by professional wrestling. So we will be, uh, you know, check that show out. You know, May 22nd. Dark Side of the Ring 
is going to be airing for the next two weeks. So check out Dark Side of the Ring if you have not watched that. It's an incredible show looking at some of the um, darker sides of pro wrestling. And this show is looking at wrestling in its its current day and how amazing and broad it is. So it's very two different shows, you know, but both shows looking at the wonderful world of professional wrestling. So both are amazing in their own right. And, uh, yeah, I can't wait for you to see it. Finally, 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 May 22nd. We got some big – and this this thing's going to affect this podcast, too, because I'm not going to just be promoting this thing without giving you something. No, 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 no. There's going to be some awesome stuff coming up on this podcast. There's going to be some unbelievable stuff coming up on this podcast starting this week because this week on the show, it's John Darneal, one of the most requested guests on this show, someone that we've wanted to have on for a very long time. We've had – We've had other band members of Mountain Goats on. Shout out to friend of the show, an all-around amazing human being. And spoiler alert, coming back for a part two, or part four, kind of, when you actually break it down. John Worcester. We've had band members of his on the show. John Worcester has been on the show a bunch. But we've never had John Darneal. And this is someone that I've, oh, I've wanted to be able to nerd out with. This is someone who's a parent. This is someone that wrote a concept record about territory wrestling. This is someone who's written a book about Black Sabbath, and this is someone who has put out multiple records on the Turned Out of Punk favorite Ajax Records. So, you know, you know that this is going to be a doozy, and it is a doozy. John is, oh, John's one of my favorite people to talk to now. John Darneal has shot pretty much right to the top of the list, one of my favorite people to talk to. We had a blast, and this is actually... The second attempt at recording this podcast, the first time we attempted, the audio was uh, not so great, so we decided to scrap it. And this time, the audio is better than it was, but there are still a couple reception issues, but do not worry. If you can power through those, and they're not that bad, you will be rewarded by one of the best Turn Out of Punk episodes ever. Uh, you know, if you're a Mountain Goats fan, this is unbelievable. If you're not a Mountain Goats fan, you're just a Turn Out of Punk fan, get ready to become a Mountain Goats fan because you will leave this loving this dude. He is amazing. He's such a great person to talk to. couple notes. Uh, well, actually, only really one other note other than the audio stuff. The Sex Pistols track listing that we talk about. I'm all confused when he starts asking me, what song's next, what song's next? That's because there's multiple track listings for this record. How could I have forgotten? So there's a U.S. version a uh, UK 12-track version and 11-track version, and, and the order changes. So, you know, but for John, you, it'll make sense when you get to that part of the episode. But just wanted you to know, that's why I was so confused, and I think we were both so confused, because there are multiple track listings for Nevermind the Bullocks. Well, that's it. I got nothing else to uh, yammer on about except uh, letting you sit back, relax, and enjoy one of the greats, one of the greatest. John Darneal on Turned Out a Punk. So here's a here's a thing, you know, when you are a parent, um, before you're a parent, a lot of people will talk about, you know, if somebody says their feelings are hurt, we will often go, oh yeah, a poor thing, your feelings are hurt, right? 
like it wasn't like like it doesn't suck ass to have your feelings hurt you know mm-hmm. it's like we don't need to be putting people's feelings ahead of everything of course if there's more important issues like issues of justice or whatever feelings come second right yeah but that doesn't mean that people's feelings aren't important you know it doesn't mean you should just be a dick to people for no good reason you know and i think when you're younger you go no i gotta be a dick to the people i feel like being a dick to and it's not like that <laughs> yeah no 100 percent. like it's that sense of power being a dick gives you and when you feel it's a false sense of power who looks Uh who looks weak when you do that who looks weak you do your target never looks bad your target looks good when they go yeah i don't know what i did to piss that guy off but good good luck to him yeah (laughs) that's who winds up looking good so i think we all secretly just want a great you know lyrical beef war with someone yeah, we don't do that anymore. And the other thing is, like, I don't know. It's like, like I would love to have had a beef war with David Berman, but one, I'm not worthy, and two, I don't have any beef with him. But he's the best. It's like the the other lyricists who I think are good. I look up to them and I love them. You know, it's like I don't I don't want to squabble with them. But when I was younger, I totally would have gone. I don't think that's what's worth writing about, you know, and and uh, and so on. I had all kinds of all kinds of dumbass opinions. <laughs> Well, much in the same way, I don't think I'd want any smoke with you on a lyrical beef war myself. So, <laughs> you know, I think I think there'd be a, a lot of uh, fear going on in indie rock. Is, I've actually come to a pretty gentle place in the way I think about that. It's like I used to. I was a big old call out any lyric I thought was bad guy back when. And now I think, yo, if it's self-expression, you know, if it's actually something that somebody is writing to to give oxygen to a thing that's inside them, who am I to mm-hmm. say that it's bad? I'm somebody to say it's good. If it resonates with me, then I absolutely have standing to say, wow, I heard that and I get it. But if it doesn't land on me like that, who am I to, 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 to judge uh, self-expression like that? I can judge the craft. I can say, well, that's lazy writing. You know, I can, if I, I often will beef about people's, uh, you know, if they put the stress on the wrong syllable, I will 100%. Look, you need to rewrite that line. So, yeah. so, the, so, so you pronounce the word right. You know, and so <laughs> I, I hate that. It's, a thing I, it's my one thing I will never be free of. Is like, I can't stand it when people do that. I go, you could have spent five more minutes on that line and gotten it to really zing. <laughs> so, and then I get real mad. People will say, oh, it's wordplay. That's not what wordplay means. So, yeah. But, so yes, I still have a few of my little pedantic tendencies hanging well, around that we can tease out in time. I think I think a lot of it's being a parent too, because like I've heard old country road now, but a thousand times, and uh, you have to have a little humility when you're when you have children and you realize like, oh, if this music brings them joy, who am I to judge it? Seriously, if it brings and then and then but then you then you share that sentiment with people who aren't your kids. You say if this music is bringing so many people pleasure, mm-hmm. just stay out of the way. It's not for yep. you. You know you don't have to even spend. A little of your energy opinionating about that, you know. And so, I mean, I actually think that's. I think enough people know that that that's part of why people are often trying to find some something like morally disagreeable uh, in a song about, so that they can have what will look more like legit beef with it, you know. Yeah, absolutely, a hundred percent. Well, I want to take you back to a time when you did have a little more PP and vinegar in your system. Yes, when it comes to this <laughs> stuff. Uh, John, what was the f- first time you ever came across the genre of punk rock? So uh, I'm old enough that I was around when it was new, right? When the word punk was first coined. Right? Okay. So I would have been, um, let's see. I and mean, when do you think of as, as, as ground zero for punk? 76? Well, right? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely one of those people that kind of thinks it kind of coalesces. Yeah, around 76, I'd say. Is so, like, yeah, I mean, it's like I would now retroactively call a lot of the garage bands of the 60s punk bands. Totally, you know, it's totally. Like the, the Stooges count as proto-punk, right? But, but I would have heard about it in the, in the L.A. Times, probably, um, when I was – I was born in 67, so when I was 10-ish, right? <laughs> and I remember also my mom reading about it. It was kind of – there was a lot of buzz about it, right? Mm-hmm. And it would have been the Sex Pistols, right, whose name was quite scandalous. And, <laughs> and my mom was a librarian, and she was in, she worked in the audiovisual department. So she ordered Nevermind the Bollocks for the library, right? That's pretty and cool. I had, and I, it is cool. And I had heard uh, about it. And I really, as a guy who loved rock and roll, everything I heard about punk, I was kind of afraid of. I was like, they want to end this thing that I like. You know, it's like they, yeah. and, and this was what I heard. It's like, they're going to destroy Pink Floyd. What's wrong with Pink Floyd? <laughs> so, uh, so I was, but it was scary. It was a little scary. And the thing that was beautiful about it, and this is part of the Sex Pistols deal is like, by the time you heard it at that time, it, it already had won half the battle. It's like, you were already afraid of it a little bit, right? By the time you heard it, especially if you're a kid. And so I was ready, you know, I was ready to hear it and you put it on and you hear no, 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 no. What's the first song inside that one? Is it um, is it Holly's in the Sun? I think it is. Holly's in right? the Sun opens, yeah, Never Mind the Bullocks, I believe. Yeah, dude. I mean, seriously, like, you hear that massive riff, right, And uh, that, that lands on a tonic, like a proper rock song, right? And, yeah. uh, and it was utterly mortifying, right? And I liked it a lot. I was like, oh, because I did notice, like, oh, this is rock and roll. Yeah. Know, this, is, this actually is rock and roll, whatever they're saying. But I was also then, I feel like Bodies is number two. Is that right? I'm trying to think now. I've got to check the track listing, but I, Bodies is definitely early in that record, and that's my favorite song. So I should know where it falls. So, so that's your favorite, and that is the one that scared the shit out of me. Oh, like, that's like why was, it's my favorite because it scared the shit out of me too. Absolutely, yeah, go on though. Yeah, it totally. I mean, I heard it. It's one of those things where when I was a kid, I would take something off that made me feel that way. I did not want to explore that. I was, like, I would have a feeling of attraction to it, so I'd come back to it later. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd come back and I'd circle it and circle it but i was like i heard that i took it no this is bad music i'm not into this right and uh and then i went back to listening to like you know heart and aerosmith um but uh who were my that, that was the music i was afraid that punk was coming to end yeah you know? which what's funny about that is like every fucking punk band in the world now doing their reunion tours they all became exactly the bands that they that they said they weren't going to be you know with yep. like rotating memberships and and uh, you know, one original member uh, touring and, and offering you, you know, you can get backstage and get a signature for an extra ten bucks, all that kind of shit. Yeah, you can meet the band, the meet the band experience. And... Seriously, man. I mean, the thing is, I mean, I don't know that English punk was ever about eroding that barrier. Mm-hmm. We're talking about North American punk and probably European punk when we talk about that sort of like, you know, the band is just like you and me. The Sex Pistols were trying to be rock stars, just of a different order, right? They were trying to to change the game, but still be in the game. Whereas once it gets over to North America, big questions about whether maybe everybody gets to be in the game, you know, get raised. Yeah, no, definitely. Like, it's, it's funny, you know, you, you think about the Ramones. The Ramones wanted to be a giant band. Like oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, Dee Dee, right? Or no, is it, who is it? Johnny, Johnny is the one yeah. who wanted to be massive, right? So. Yeah, absolutely. No, they were definitely like, they, yeah, and like you're saying, and, and the Clash too, like, look where the Clash went. It was much more the second wave of punk rock where the politics and the DIY kind of like flag was firmly planted. It feels like. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that, that comes partly from North America and partly from, from Europe. You know, I think Italian punks were all very like, we're going to sleep on your floor. That's our plan. <laughs> and so, uh, 
and all that until by the time you get to the 90s, like it's a very, a very aggressive feel is like, you know, no rock stars, none of this crap, right? No rock star attitudes that used to say on flyers and stuff around LA. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. What, what, so your mom ordering that record, was it like she into music or just because this is such a, a phenomena in the news media at the time? It or? would have just been, I mean, I think she was the AV person. I forget. I mean, I, th- I think she was, I think she was interested in Johnny Rotten, you know, it was like, when you're when you're ordering stuff for the library, you you look through these. It's not like you you go say, "Oh, I'm going to go get this." You have a catalog of stuff, right? Okay. From whoever you're buying stuff from, yeah. and you go through, and it's just like anything. It's like every little bit of PR that was done on behalf of the band then results in somebody going, "Oh, the Sex Pistols. That's that's yeah, that's like pretty big now, right?" And you order it, right? And they were on A and M or no or EMI. And, and, and and no, they they uh, sex was on a they were on Virgin when the record were, actually came out. They were on all three labels, but then when the LP came out, it was ultimately on Virgin. But yeah, but it was somebody who had who would have had been in the catalog. Here's your yeah. spring releases library. Which ones do you want? And my mom would have seen it and gone, "Oh, I'm interested in that." Right. So yeah. Uh, well, but that's still like so many parents at that time were like they'd hear about that and be like, "Okay, let's make sure no one ever hears this." Like I've had so many people on the show that just talk about how averse their parents were when they heard about it or saw it, like the spitting in the crowd and like, especially all the stuff that was really played up in that initial media blitz you're talking about. Yeah, no, my, 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 none of my parents, uh, you know, whatever, any of any, any complaint I might have about any of the stuff, they're always very, you know, actually my father uh, would have been the one who would have like sort of, if I'd have wanted to talk about the sex pills with him, it would have been an unpleasant, unfun conversation. He wasn't the kind of guy to, because he's a jazz musician, so he would have forced me to defend it. And you can't defend stuff against a guy like my dad. You can just sit there and have an unfun time in your argument. Right? Yeah. Whereas, whereas uh, you know, my mom and my stepfather were both sort of like, anything you want to listen to is fine uh, or read as long as, you know, as long as if, if we want to talk to you about it, you know, it's like there was no, there were no hidden stuff. There, were, there, there was a, a degree of hipness there. Okay. Absolutely. It does, it does sort of make you start looking for what you can listen to that will piss them off. So. Yeah. Um, what, and where were you hearing music at this time? Like you mentioned being much more of a rock kid. Was it just kind of rock radio or? There was radio, there was KMET and uh, uh, KLOS were the two major stations in Southern California. The Mighty Met, 94.7, and KLOS, 95.5. Uh, and they, I mean, that was like FM rock radio. It was this monolith, right? It was, yeah. and you could, all those guys who were doing it, they totally, they thought it was forever. You could feel it. Like, <laughs> this is how we live now. You know? and yeah. So Jim Ladd um, was a big figure then. And uh, uh, there was also K-Rock, which, which was New Wave, which was the rock of the 80s, right? And mm-hmm. there was KSPC, which was... Uh, which was a college radio, which uh, legendary station in Claremont. And this has, I have a lot of funny stories about KSPC because I was listening to it from the time I was like nine years old, right? And because they had the best reception because it was literally six blocks from my house, right? Okay. So uh, from my grandma's house. And, uh, but they mostly played college music, right? Now, this is before college rock is a thing. This would have been starting around 76, 77. So KSPC would have been one of the stations going, you know, what we're going to do is play some of this punk rock stuff. We're going to play 999. We're going to play, uh, you know, who else? Uh, uh, Reckless Eric, you know, all, That's the, all awesome. the early stuff. Right. So they were playing that. And they were playing um, uh, Normal, right? I remember hearing, you know, the Normal? Yeah, the, the, the first Mute band, right? It's the guy who started Mute Records, I believe. I think that's right. And they had a song, they wrote One Leatherette. Uh, yeah, which Grace Jones memorably covered, it. and the B side was called TVOD. Yes, right? absolutely. 
And I would have heard that on the radio when I was 10. And I remember it scared the fuck out of me. I, I mean, I just found it so terrifying. And it was so memorable because I was a very literal, I mean, I'm still the way, I was a very literal minded child. So when he, the lyric is, and I haven't heard this song in like 20 years or more, but it went directly into my brain was, I don't need no TV screen. I just stick the aerial into my skin and let the message run through my veins, TVOD. Right. And I heard that and I was like, these fucking people are taking TV aerials and putting them in their arms. That is, whoa. And they're bragging and then they write a song about it. Right. Like that's, I mean, think about if that was true, how fucked up that is. Right? So, that is, that is even sub Gigi. Yeah. No, it's like, it's, oh, it's way beyond. I mean, Gigi's an amateur compared to somebody who's like, I found a way to harness TV shit through my, and, and an aerial is not pointed either. It's like, that would involve, it was like very, and I was scared and he was delivering the lines so dispassionately or she, I forget. Um, but like, uh, you know, I, I don't need, no, it was very this dispassionate, disaffected new wave sound. Right. And, uh, yeah. and I was scared by that. And so, uh, so that's but that's where I would have heard that. But I stuck mainly to the classic rock stuff. I was very much a big rock defender for right up until I was like fourteen or so. I mean, I got into the Sex Pistols before that, and I thought it was great. But it wasn't until I was fourteen and I read, I think it was Grail Marcus's essay in the Rolling Stone Illustrated History of Rock and Roll, where he does a a long riff on Holidays in the Sun, and uh, and I was like, oh. Yeah, no, that's that that resonates with me. That's right. That's what I'm feeling when I hear this song. And then I started looking a little further afield. Were you kind of like seeing like punk people around you at that point too, or there like other you know not not maybe kids because you're young at this point, but like other people you're seeing around you that were into this stuff? So there's uh, there's a bunch of touchstones. I mean, this is Southern California, right? So yeah. so so I'm I'm not in LA, but I'm adjacent enough to be reading about the shows. The LA Times critics were writing about them, about the Alice Bag Band, about the Germs about the runaways, about uh, the Go-Go's who counted at the time. Absolutely. Um, and the germs especially, though, people were starting to go nuts. And I remember when Darby Crash died because it was the same day that John Lennon died, right? Yep. And, and the LA Times ran a story saying, oh, you know, uh, well, we were all mourning John Lennon. Something else is this major figure. It's a sad story. And, and I read all about it. I hadn't heard about the germs. And it was another one of these. Like, the LA punk scene especially sort of had this very – uh, nihilist vibe, right? <laughs> um, and I knew a little about this because we had punks in Claremont. And this is the thing: back in those days, to have seen a punk was a thing, right? It was like you know, people would go over to London and come back with pictures of punks, right? And postcard uh, punks, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And uh, but we had some, and one of them was Roz Williams from Christian Death, right? Uh, and he hung out with uh, Jay Albert, who was drummed in Bad Religion and is still <laughs> around. Um, so Jay lived on my block, right? He was one of the high school kids that you were afraid of, right? He was like, <laughs> because he, I mean, he, they would, these kids, I remember Jay and Roz and two other punk looking dudes walking around on Ian Beardsley's lawn, right? And sort of walking stiffly like robots just on an afternoon. It's not Halloween or anything. You're sort of walking around and I'm like nine, right? And I walk up and one of them steps out the sidewalk and says, freep, freep. Right. And I went, I mean, how are you supposed to respond to that? I'm a yeah. kid, you know, and they're not blocking my way or anything. They're just sort of like making a point of getting my attention and saying creep. Right. Like they're and and they weren't giggling about it. And it was like, what the fuck is this? Is that what punks are? Punks are like operating on some different kind of communicative frequency. And, and it's like so that was I mean, they were they were the people you were scared of just because of how they looked, you know, and because and because they sort of I mean, they're pranksters. Right. I and mean, that's the that's that's what that's actually all about. It's and it is. What's funny about it is, for all the punk hatred and hippieism, 
hippies did the exact same shit, right? It's like in hippie movie after hippie movie, going to the restaurant and say some blow the waitress's mind. You yeah, know? freak it's people like, out, man. It's the same shit. <laughs> it's like, um, so, uh, so yeah, so there was that kind of proximity, and I was afraid of it, especially in Southern California, that you would hear about the Orange County punks were supposed to be like violent and. Well, uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, no, I was going to say that's the thing, right? Like, like you know, like someone like you know John Worcester, like he he grew up in a scene with the Dead Milkman. You're growing up in a scene with the guy from Christian Death, who's infamous for being a freak. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and they, they were not a punk. That was the beginnings of post punk, really. But he was adjacent to that. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Before and... oh, that whole scene is just like you know they they were like there's all these crazy stories about that guy and that whole scene of band. So yeah, I don't imagine they would be uh, very welcoming to a, a preteen kid. <laughs> Yeah, no, it was, and the thing is, like, I'm sure, I'm sure Albert had seen me around town before, it was like, oh, he's that little kid, and I, who I totally would have, like, if I thought somebody knew something about music, I was the kind of guy to go and just press them for information, Yeah, and ask them questions, kind of look through your record collection, what's this, what's this, what's this, but I was also, like, um, a big, a big impact for me was uh, the son of, he was a library aide, a guy named Peter, who's, uh, whose mom did babysitting on the side, which in those days just meant drop, drop the kids off at my house and let them run, let them run around at my house because I'm home, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so my mom was dropping me off at, uh, at Peter's house, at his, Peter's mom's house, and this kid was a teenager who had a really decent record collection by my standards. It was all rock. He had Montrose, I remember. He had Alice Cooper. Um, he had, you know, I was looking through that kind of stuff and, and asking questions. He did not have any proper punk stuff. Well, yeah, it's super early for that too. Even at that point, I imagine. Yeah, no, it was hard to see. I don't remember seeing much besides the germs record and the sex pistols and the Ramones, of course, who were around. Um, but who always just sounded like a great rock and roll band. I mean, so it, framing the Ramones <laughs> as punk is kind of, kind of a genius PR move. Cause it's like, that's just good. You know, it, they owe more, much more to the Shangri-Las and Shadow Morton than they do to, to the Stooges, you know. Yeah, so, yeah, definitely. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, the thing that happens in California then is after the whole decline period, right, of Circle Jerks, uh, Germs, Alice Bag, who else is in that that bunch? Um, oh, like TSOL too, like kind of the TSOL who Orange County goth, invasion, right? Yeah. yeah, 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 absolutely. All that stuff, stuff on Doctor No, you know. But after that happens in Claremont, where I lived, all the punks got super into discharge, right? Mm-hmm. Like suddenly, and by this time, I'm like 15, right? And the generation after me in Claremont, like in 83, right, was like kids who were starting to wear Liberty Spikes to school, right? There mm-hmm. was nothing. There was one person doing something like that before, and you knew who they were. It was like, <laughs> oh, wow, yeah. <laughs> Amazing, he's, he's done this thing, you know. Uh, John Momquist, may he rest in peace, dying here silver and coming to school, you know. But, uh, but, uh, but around '83, the new generation of kids would be showing up in, in leather jackets with the band names painted in white on them, and it was discharge all fucking day. It was discharge <laughs> and ru- rudimentary peni and uh, UKDK, yeah, and uh, and that kind of stuff, which was new. I mean, it was like it was so much faster. Like it was the stuff that sort of seemed to make good on the promise, on the threat of what punk was supposed to be like. Because mm-hmm. most of the other stuff, when you heard it, it's like, well, this is rock and roll. The germs, I'll put on the outside of that. Bad brains, I'll put on the outside of that. These are bands really pushing it, right? Yeah. Uh, but for the most part, you'd hear these punk bands, you go, this is rock and roll where the guy isn't actually singing. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, but then these newer bands seem so blurry fast. And now you listen to them and you go, no, it was just rock. <laughs> 
Like discharge does not sound threatening now. When you hear discharge, you don't go, "Oh my god, we're, they're yeah. playing so fast." We're like <laughs> in a post grindcore, post black metal, post power violence universe where yeah, all this stuff. Yeah, you're right. Like it's just it now all sounds like like you're saying the Ramones now sound like just classic rock because they always were. Is the thing. Yeah. It's like yeah, but uh, I mean, I discovered when I was like. Uh, I didn't discover. I was told like I had. I was playing a friend's guitar when I was like nineteen, and he said, "Oh, put it through this pedal. Step on the pedal. It turns everything into a Ramon song." Right? It was HM two, right? <laughs> <laughs> the boss HM two. Yeah, and it was totally true. You said that you step on. I say, "Oh, now I'm playing the Ramones." <laughs> <laughs> so actually, when did you start playing? Were you playing, you know, before you got into punk rock as well? No, I mean I played piano. I was uh, I was uh, I, I studied classical piano until I was about ten. And, uh, and then one of my, maybe 12, and then one of my first, like, you can't tell me what to do moments was like, I don't think I'm going back to piano lessons this fall. Yeah. And there was no, there was no blowback on it. I think my, my family was relieved because it cost like 50 bucks a week or something like that. It was crazy. So, um, my, my teacher was disappointed and I, I carry that with me every day, <laughs> but, uh, but, and I'm disappointed because I can't play for shit now. It's like, I would be good now if I'd stuck to it. I can do a thing. But Matt, who's in my band, that guy can actually play, and I'm so jealous of people who can actually play piano. But, uh, but so yeah. But I had learned enough music to be curious enough. And there is a funny story actually about uh, about how I wound up learning a chord or two on guitar. Um, I was I had a bully when I was in seventh grade, right? mm-hmm. so I would have been twelve, thirteen, and this guy lived on the same block as me, right? Which meant that we walked home the same route, right? And he had two friends who were helping him bully me, right? And I, I was not a fighter at all. I had nothing. I had nothing. It's like mm-hmm. I, all I could do was sit there and try and talk you out of kicking my ass, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that usually doesn't work. <laughs> and, and even even if you get somewhere, it was just so unpleasant to have somebody sitting there confronting you and being an asshole to you for half an hour when you're just trying to get home, you know? And and so and they would follow me. It's like because there was a little vacant lot between the way from the junior high to my house was down this one street past a baseball field through a vacant lot and then you hopped or wedged through a fence to get onto my street. Otherwise you have to go a long way around, but I had to go through this fucking vacant lot every day. Right. Yeah. And, and so I'm going to get bullied every fucking day. And I would like, I would tell the principal and there'd be, you know, we'd have some meeting with the principal and the kid would be mad or whatever, but he would just start right back up. You know, it was no, there was nothing. And, you know, people would say, well, you should learn how to fight. I was like, no, that's not me. I was yeah. very much, I was heading hippie. I was trending hippie in my own personal life. And so I was like, no, I'm not going to learn to fight for some asshole. <laughs> it's like, so, uh, you know, I'll figure something else out. What I figured out was, it's a long story. I'm sorry. Um, no, dude, this uh, is, yeah. what I figured out was I was walking home. I see that these guys are behind me. Right. And I went, ah, fuck. And I turned left on uh, Harrison street instead of going down the street, the junior high was on. And I just keep walking, right. Walking toward downtown. And I'd look behind me and I'd see them talking to each other. They think I'm maybe going to at some point duck into someplace. And I walked all the way downtown, which is probably half a mile, three quarters of a mile from the high school, I think. Okay. And I got there and I, I walked to the library. I thought, I know the library. My mom works at libraries. And I walked in and I said, I want to volunteer. <laughs> <laughs> so they said, cool, right? They signed me up to volunteer. I was cleaning their record collection, right? But now I was going downtown like five days a week because that was someplace where I was safe, right? Yeah. There was also a place called the Folk Music Center, right, which is a legendary place. Uh, ben Harper's parents um, uh, founded it, right? Uh, uh, Charlie Chase, uh, and it's this f- amazing place that fits into the universe of Pete Seeger and stuff. The okay. the people who would have inspired Bob Dylan uh, 
were trying to create a world in which places like the Folk Music Center existed, where you could come in and play instruments, cool ones like dulcimers, hammer dulcimers, lap dulcimers, acoustic guitars, all kinds of cool stuff. They had songbooks, and they had all these acoustic guitars on the wall. And I started when I would go to my library volunteer gig to go to the Folk Music Center. I would go over to where the chord charts were, and this is very much me. I would look at the chord chart and go, okay, a D looks like this, and I would try and get it in my mind. I didn't want to take the chord chart over to the guitars because I was, I was afraid somebody would like go, why are you taking that book over there? Yeah. So I'd look at the book real hard, go back over to the guitar with the one chord in my mind, because right? <laughs> I couldn't take two, and sit there and try and teach myself a D. And I would go back and forth, and I, and I taught myself three chords uh, in the space of, you know, about a school year of, of walking to the folk music center, walking downtown, doing library volunteer work and going in there and teaching myself how to play a few chords, the D, the G and the A. So, wow. Which as it, which as it happened are the one, the four and the five, right. Which is all you really need. <laughs> yeah, no, it definitely, it's uh, I don't know, I guess it's something, I don't know, life changing that came out of something so terrible you know like it's such a <laughs> life traumatizing kind of thing to have a bully and have to deal with that and then... yeah well the thing is like I I, I I i mean i appreciate that but i always judge myself as like this kid was not that, not really bigger than me he just meaner than me you know it's like nowadays i think of myself as like i sort of wish i'd swung back when you hit a bully they tend to bleed you know yeah. it's like bullies are bullies are cowards <laughs> like, that's really true and adults tell you that but i was like i didn't want to be a person who hit people i was learning about nonviolence. you know it's yeah. like i was like i don't want to do this shit you know i was like really but the thing is as with both of the people who bullied me in uh Junior high and high school, I later got apologies from, and I didn't have to ask for them. It's like they they both volunteered them. And the thing is, like, this is the thing. I know this is not a popular position to hold now. We're supposed to be holding people accountable for their behavior and everything. But that bullying is not coming from a place of power. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's because people are, you know, your bully probably is getting his ass kicked by his father at home, right? It's almost a sure thing. And he feels powerless and he feels angry and he feels hopeless and he's got to do something with that or you know or your bully is closeted and I'm, I'm certain that's been the case a million times it's like a guy who's very struggling a lot with stuff that's going on inside him you know and uh and is in high school we're talking about the 80s we're not talking about a time when you might run into somebody who might encourage you to explore who you are you know and both of my bullies at some point i ran into and uh and after high school and I was open with them about it, right? So with, with uh, I remember one in particular who, like, I mean, I saw him, like, it's a fucking jolt of fear. It's like, this is the guy who always tries to kick my ass. If he sees me, he goes out of his way to call me, you know, to drop F-bombs on me and, uh, and, and to be a total fucking dick to me. And I have to go all the way around the school to avoid this guy. And, uh, and I saw him at the park, like, I don't know, but 19 by now, some, some school meetup, 19 or 20, some post-school and, and hey John, how you been? I said, Oh hey Joe, how, how are you? He goes, I'm good. How are you? I said, Um, you know, I'm fine. Uh, the last time I saw you, you were threatening to kick my ass. I actually had to leave a party about it, right? And he said, Oh, oh yeah, yeah. I, I'm sorry. I'm not. I'm, I'm not angry. I'm not an angry person anymore. You know. And it was like it was beautiful to me. Yeah. It was like cool. Well, that sucked ass. But I'm not gonna hold your feet to the fire about it. I don't know what was going on with you. You know. It's like. I mean, I feel like if I'd have been, if I'd have wanted to, I could have said, "Well, look, I would like for you to give me some explanation." You know, that would yeah. be fair to say. But it's you know, for me, the path of going, well, that sucked, but I don't know your story. You know, is was was working for me. And the other guy, I used to see him at at like butthole surfer shows afterwards. He was wearing like a fucking 
parka and and mod you know mod stuff on it he had become you know so many young bullies are just trying to figure out how the fuck they're gonna live yeah yeah you're right it's it is like not to undermine what they put their victims through but at the same time they are a lot of times like you're saying they're victimizing or being victimized um yeah because it depends on the nature of the bullying i I don't want to excuse abominable behavior these are guys who made life unpleasant for me and pushed me around some these are not guys who like you know did unspeakable awful shit to me just just mean shit Mm -hmm. you know and i do draw a distinction between that for myself you know it's like just just it's like if you know if they had done shit that like when i think about it i still feel angry then that would be different. But when I think about it, I think, well, shame on you fucking guys, you know, but that's as far as I take it, you know, yeah. like, as long as they feel a little shame about it later, then I think it's, you know, we're, then we're even. But what a weird thing we have to do where we like, you know, tell kids to like, okay, you got to learn how to fight. To do hate it, shit. you know, but it's true. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, and the thing is, so you have, what, what are your kids? Three, six and nine. And they're, they're boys, girls. Mixed. All boys. They're all boys. So I got two boys, right? And when some kid is mean to my son, I totally want to go. I mean, I don't, you know, but my, my heart goes, why don't you make him eat your fucking fist, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and I, yeah. And I would be the funniest person alive. And that's exactly what I said to him last night. <laughs> like, go, here, we're going to go to the backyard. I'm going to teach you how to throw a punch. And you're going to go fight yeah. tomorrow. No, it's like, I mean, he's like, he's four. <laughs> so, yeah. But, uh, yeah. But I totally think that, like, there's a kid that they all look up to in his class. It's like they think he's tougher than them because he flexes a lot. And I want to go, I want to tell him, it's like, you guys think that's the cool kid. <laughs> you guys are the cool kids. Yeah. He's getting more from you than you're getting from him, you know. And, yeah. Uh, you know, but, but yeah, like, it really is the case. It's like when, it, when I imagine somebody shoving my son. I want my son to show him what he's made of. And I don't actually want that. But, you know, obviously I don't. I'm not going to teach you to think that way. But there is that part of yourself that's very visceral. That it oh, wants absolutely. to go. Yeah. It's like, no, I want my son to defend himself. And I do think those of us who sort of have those pacifist leanings, we owe it to ourselves to investigate that feeling and to, to think about it a little harder. You know, to, to think, isn't it good to defend yourself? It is good. It's like, you know, it's like judo is good. You know, it's like... <laughs> But you, with a child, of course, you have to think about, is my child going to learn something and then go start kicking people's ass, you know, which is yeah. wrong. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, but I think, you know, being some, some degree of understanding that people don't get to lay hands on you without some cost is good. Yeah, I think it's, it's like such a weird, because you want to teach your kid to stand up for themselves, but you don't want them to turn them into be an assertive dick. Yeah. You know, you want, there's just like such a balance as a parent, you know, and it's, oh, I like, and it's, it's one of those things that now I just have a lot of uh a lot of understanding about why finding subculture was so important to me and i'm like really hoping my kids are able to find some sort of subculture that allows them to to you know feel feel the same thing that i got at a punk rock or that people get at a metal or or writing graffiti or rap music or whatever it is you know well, that gets into the whole subject of the, like what what does subculture mean in the after after the internet happens you know Absolutely. Uh, yeah after high speed comes along because for those of us who found subcultures back then you know it was like finding gold it was <laughs> like oh oh my god oh my god there's other people who like finding somebody who fucking knew who the Velvet Underground was for me was like locating a wizard you yeah know? it was like oh my god I'll never forget when a friend brought home White Light White Heat. From from France, this yeah, is a guy yeah. whose parents were professors, and he went to to France and he brought back a copy. I was like, "There it is! It exists!" I had never heard of it. I was freaking out to, to lay eyes on it, you know. And uh, and so it's a very different world now. It's like you can find your tribe 
very quickly. You know, yeah. there's no problem. And in fact, I, you know, that's one of the things I fret about is like, well, take your time in, in choosing your alignment. You know, don't, don't, <laughs> don't sort of just, just you, know, you think about that. It's like, it, it, it's, it's worth, worth weighing your options instead of going, well, here's something that seems good today. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, uh, but but the thing is that is their world to navigate. What we can understand of it is always going to be limited because we're older and we grew up in a different time. Well, that's the thing, right? Like like you're saying, you, I don't think you have to choose an alignment in the same way. We can all be true neutral now in the sense that yeah. like you don't have the resource commitment where you like you know you have to be like okay, I'm going to be a punk, so I got to buy punk shirts and punk records, and I'm going right. to be you know now it's like I can I can just be in a music because I pay or my parents are in the position to pay nine ninety nine a month or whatever. So right. I can listen to everything ever. Yeah. Well, the thing is, but let's. I mean, I I guess, but so I can listen to 20% of everything ever, but it yeah. feels like so much stuff that we're calling it everything ever, but it's not right. <laughs> That's like true. Actually, that is very true. What's actually out there is just a sliver of what, of what, what actually exists. And there's a weird reframing going on right now of calling it everything. And it's not, there's, I mean, the, the amount of shit that is not on Spotify or any of the streaming services is giant. You know, it's like, there's, there's a whole hidden world still to discover and it'll always be there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm just talking like this has nothing to do with the, the youth part of it, but like, we need to remember that's not everything. There's more. Right? Oh no, absolutely. And like, you know, I'm, I'm surrounded by a tomb of dead formats right now. Yes. And they're the best. Well, yeah. And, that, and the thing is, there's so, there, it's, there's so much stuff, obviously, other than the joy I get from listening to them on these formats, but there's also just stuff from a practical standpoint that probably won't show up on these streaming services anytime soon. Yeah, totally. Well, especially when you're talking about old punk records right? yeah it's like there's a i wonder i wonder how long it would take me to not find i bet you i know uh which is the first i wonder if man is the bastard is on spotify <laughs> I, that's the one thing i will say there are some weird ones that are on there and they're like <laughs> how is this band like on? well that's because the thing is it's not the band none of those guys were operating on i mean i'm talking about man is the bastard but so many of those bands were not there was no contract right yeah so yeah. whoever has the master recordings is the one who one day goes, I'm putting this on Spotify yeah. right? and I will keep all the money for myself. And that's going on. I mean, that goes on at, you know, I, I don't think anybody's getting rich off of it, but there's plenty of people who are owed money that is going to somebody else. Uh, oh, Cause definitely. they're the ones who thought to upload it to streaming. So, Oh, definitely. It happens with huge artists too, right? Like how many huge artists get sound alike songs uploaded or something oh, just, man. <laughs> just to try and get something from them. Who listens to this? Uh, although I accidentally, like, I forget it was some, there's another thing that happens where like one member of a, of an act re-records their hit and gets it up. Right. <laughs> and you listen to it by accident and you go, okay, no, this is like, I, I, I never really noticed the drum track of this song before, but now I'm noticing that that is not the right drum track. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a, it's a, uh, a very unusual time. Have you ever thought about how much of your stuff? Cause obviously you're a very prolific songwriter. Like how much of your stuff isn't on there? at this point do you think um i don't think it's much actually i don't i don't uh i mean i think it's some stray compilation stuff but the we collected a whole bunch of the early uh seven inches and compilation tracks and stuff on three cds in the late 90s or early 2000s right and then they were re reprinted at one point those three are all up so those feature a lot of the really obscure stuff um and then um what about like extra glenn's stuff is that up there now yeah it's up uh the the uh the first record the extra glenn's became the extra lens 
And uh, the uh, the first album was Extra Glance, that was absolutely kosher, and that's up as far as I know. And the second one was on Merge, and that's up. Yeah, that one's um, on Merge. I got the seven inch not too long ago, like a radio. Oh, that's program. not anywhere. Yeah, I know that. That you have to go to YouTube for that. <laughs> <laughs> or you go to a used record store like myself, and you find yeah. it. I think there were only 500 of those. Is the thing that was on Harriet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, as I say, I, we're, we're we're barely scratched the surface yet, John, because I got to talk to you about my my Ajax record collection and my fascination with that label at some point. Do you have the Mighty Joe Young 7-inch? I do have all. I have Holy a pretty, shit. <laughs> I have a pretty substantial uh, Confederacy of Scum collection. I think I, oh, no kidding. Fucking Anti-Scene played last night, and because I am aged, I did not go, and I've still never fucking seen them. You know? Oh, I would, and that also is, that was, that tour is Anti-Scene, I Hate God, and The Obsessed. I know, and I've met Mike from I Hate God, and he's a swell dude, and I love I Hate God, like, so much. That's and, awesome. Uh, but it was over, you know how it is, like, it was yep. over in Chapel Hill, it's half an hour from here, and when and the kids, they just got back into school after two weeks of spring break, because the spring breaks were staggered, so one was home all week, and the other was home all week. And I got a bunch of pre-tour work to do, and I put the kids to bed, and I crawled in my own bed, and I look at, I open up the laptop, and go, oh, fuck, anti-scene night hit Goddard at 5.06 tonight, huh? <laughs> I said, well, I hope they have a good show. <laughs> it's it's amazing once you have kids how the idea of leaving your house becomes so hard after you put them oh, to yeah. bed. Oh, my God. It's, it's, well, it, I, I think it's hormonal, probably. For yeah. It's like you soak up some of their sleep energy as you're putting them down. And because uh, by the time I can go upstairs with the greatest of intentions to get some work done, right? <laughs> and going upstairs only takes 20 minutes to put them down. You brush their teeth, you, you get them dressed, you read them a story, you come downstairs. And then the energy has just completely shifted. <laughs> if I get downstairs, oh, yeah. it's like under the, like, I have gone out a time or two in the last year uh, after putting them down, but it totally feels bizarre. It's like, really? You're going to leave the house now? I mean, the day's done. You're done. <laughs> <laughs> the, the sun's gone down. You can't go outside. Yeah, now. there's no. I mean, the thing is, like, I wasn't, I hadn't, haven't been a real big go out person for a very long time now since before the kids were born. Yeah. But, but I certainly wouldn't have missed the I Hate God Anti Scene show eight years ago. So. Yeah. No, that's what I mean. Like, not even like, yeah, I was never a go out kind of person, but like the fact that even now music going to suffers, I know that, yeah, you're right. It's yeah. something hormonal. Yeah. I, and then when I do go, it's the other thing. It's like, if I go to a show, and there's no place to sit. Oh. Man, come on, man. I'm getting on in years. I don't really want to stand up all night. I, whereas when I was a teenager going to shows in L.A., I would go. I would arrive three hours early and stand at the lip of the stage yeah, for the second I got course. there, right? And you, no one was getting past me. <laughs> so like, you know, but those days are gone. Yeah, no, it, was, it would be that thing where you look at the show. You're like, well, the show starts at 8, so I think I should probably be there by about 5. Yep, every time, and because uh, you might then you might even see him going in. You might so, uh, meet him. Oh my! We God. saw we saw Nick Cave hanging out in the um, the restaurant across from the Variety Arts Center where he was playing in '87. It was Nick and Blixa and um, t- probably Thomas Weidler all hanging. Out. I remember like looking over and going, "Yeah, no, I'm not going to go say hi to that guy." <laughs> I was going to say, "Did you approach him?" <laughs> Fuck no! I, but the thing is, like that very night, then I saw him walking through the. This is one of my favorite. Rock stores because one one thing if you choose a life in music, you get to see things from the other side of something that then contextualizes an earlier experience for you, right? Yeah. You know more about it, right, than you did then. So here I am, twenty years old. It's the Kicking Against the Pricks tour, right? Um, yeah. uh, Kicking Against the Pricks and uh, the covers album. What was that thing called? Um, oh, that was the covers album. No, no, Kicking Against the Pricks and uh, the double, the Your Funeral, My Trial, double, double twelve inch was. They came out around the same time. Okay. Uh, 
And he was playing Variety Arts Center, which is a cool old place in L.A. And there was this sort of weird old restaurant hotel across the street. That was where I would have seen him hanging out. But but I'm in the the lobby of the Variety Arts Center, which is an old L.A. building. was was probably for stage productions at one point. The lobby is this carpeted, cool place. And it's where merch tables are at. And it's where everybody's hanging instead of going in to sit in the seats, right? It's a seat venue. And yeah. uh, so everybody's hanging, making the scene, right? And I'm walking to wherever, you know, there's like velvet rope stuff, very old deco looking L.A. And I run smack dab, like here's six foot whatever Nick Cave runs into me, right? You know, <laughs> and, I, and I see him. Like, oh, my God, Mr. Cave, how good to see you. You know, I love your work so much. <laughs> and he feigned this sort of, he, he put his hand on his forehead and goes, oh! Thank you, right? And shakes my hand and goes on, right? The fans like pretends that like he's totally floored to hear this and goes on. And that happens. I was like, well, you know, you, you didn't really need to point out how little it means to you that that I like your stuff, but whatever, that's fine, you know. Um, and he was he was on, but now now the first thing I know about this scenario is like, why is he out in that lobby in the first place? There's no bathroom in the dressing room. That's why he's in the lobby, right? Because yeah. yeah. he has to go through fucking two thousand people, all of whom have a special connection to his music and all of whom feel like they should have a minute to tell him what that connection is. Right. You know, he has to go through that gauntlet just to piss. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And and that's where you think, well, punk is good, right? It's like if, if American punk gets people to go, Hey, I'm going to take a piss, leave me alone. And, and, uh, and, and the level of communication gets more human, right? That's a net good. Cause you know, it's like, when I think about that, I mean, I know I've been at clubs many, many times where it's like, I mean, this is not stuff people like to hear about. But it's like, I can't go through the club to the bathroom. It will take me 10 minutes to get there and 10 minutes to get back, right? More than 10, dude. Way yeah. more than 10. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, and like, so I have, I mean, you know, I have, I have filled many empty water bottles rather than go out because it's like, I don't have the time or the energy, you yeah. know, so I'm trying to save it for the actual work, you know, and so... So and that's something you didn't know when I'm seeing the cave at the right yard center. It's like, what's he doing? Oh, he's just hanging out, I guess. <laughs> it's I, like, no, I'm 100% certain that he's only there because he has to be. So. <laughs> well, you're saying when like you, like you show up at the club three hours early and you get the band getting out of their van and they're not just as excited to see you as you are to see them. <laughs> and you're like, oh, now it's like, oh, shit, because they have to do this for 30 days in a row. And... The thing is, though, I don't know about you, but I always... I try and I go oh, through definitely. phases yeah. in my life yeah. and I'll go through phases where I'm like, okay, there's people. I can't, I can't, I can't go talk to people. I can't do that right now. But if I do see people, I, I mean, I, I, I hope that they get, you know, that they come away going, that was positive for me. You know, it's like, I hope that they come away saying, Hey, it was, I saw, saw John. I, I mean, the, the one thing I really always severely hope though, is that it cures them of a little of the thinking of me as special in any way, mm-hmm, right? Because mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm just a person working his job, you know? I mean, there's some mystique that goes into being a performer that you sort of trade on, but uh, I will trade that any day for people understanding that when I'm showing up, I'm just like a bricklayer, except that I'm making songs to sell laying bricks, you know? And uh, and so that's what I try and do. It's like, hey, you guys, how's it going? Uh, you know, sorry, sorry, see my day clothes. I look pretty ratty. <laughs> so... And I think it's because we all have those Nick Cave type experiences, you know, like where, where you're like, you know, where Nick Cave, you know, even though, you know, it's a hard day, you're, you're still meeting that person. They do have that special connection with something you created. Like, how can you yeah. not be grateful on some level for that? Yeah. Well, in, in fairness to Nick, these were like some pretty heavy druggy years. Too. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> so the thing is like, you got, you got to allow performers, to, 
hum, their humanity, you know, yeah. and their youth. It's like you're meeting somebody and you're going, oh, this is when you're young, all performers are like adults to you. Right. <laughs> but then later you go, oh, he was like 23. <laughs> it's like, Come on. Like, this is just a just a confused person wondering how is it possible that I'm not back home in Bacchus Marsh, Marsh Australia, working a fucking day job. You know, yeah. It's like just trying to figure shit out. <laughs> well, yeah, it's it's the. uh it's that thing where, you know, like you're saying, like once you get there, you understand it so much more. And even and that's not even just being in a band and playing, but I think just getting to being an adult and realizing like the stresses someone's dealing with on the road or what they're dealing with mentally at that point, because it's a mind. Yeah, it is stuff that is hard to communicate. It is and, and the thing is like yeah, it's like I have a, a long spiel about like I try not to complain about my job, you know, mm -hmm. because publicly. Uh, because I have the job everybody wants, you know, mm -hmm. and, it's, and, and it's great. It fucking owns. <laughs> it's like, I don't theoretically, I don't have to get out of bed until I want to. Now, realistically, I get out of bed at 4am when my older son wakes up. But, yeah. What's with but, the four uh, o'clock wake ups, man? Uh, it's a long story. It's a long Same story. here. Uh, yeah, it's, it's been that way for seven years. So, um, so, uh, it's cool. I mean, look, God made me to do this. I'm, that, that's why I'm an older parent. So I can do that and I can deal. I yeah, have been awake yeah. since four, <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but yeah. Um, but, but yeah. So, but because my job allows me to go when I, when I get a four o'clock wake up, I'm like, well, Hey, you know, I don't have boss. <laughs> I, don't, yeah. uh, I don't have to, I'm not answerable to anybody. I don't have to look good today if I don't want to, you know, I, uh, <laughs> if I even am able to look good in the first place. So, <laughs> Uh, but, uh, you know, so I have so much privilege. I try to, I try always not to be complaining about the job, but that doesn't mean the job doesn't have like pretty much exactly the same number of things where you go, well, I wish this was a little different as a regular job. You know, it's just that the perks are so much greater. You know? it's yeah. like the perks of our job is, and then at the end of the night, some number of people, not less than 100, not greater than 2000, <laughs> All told me with their applause that they think I kick ass. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Well, man, most people at any job would say, "Hey, if I get applause once a week for my work, I will be happy." You know, yeah. it's like if if just once, bussing dishes, everybody would stand up and go, "Well done, well done." You really kept this dining room in good order. You know, that it would it would make a big difference. And so I'm always trying not to not to bitch about stuff because of that. So. Well, I think it's also like you're saying. It's it, it, well, it's it's. I think for me, it's a lot of it's coming from punk rock and knowing that there is no boundary between band and fan. Like it's really like this edifice that kind of gets built up. Yeah, but it's not real. But the, it's not real. But the thing is, both parties benefit from it, and it's worth. Even though it's not real, it's worth preserving that illusion to some extent, so that that experience of performative communication can take place. Right? It's like. I think punk has done a lot of interesting work, like especially in the 90s when people started playing at floor level a lot, mm -hmm. you know, bands mm -hmm. in that whole I mean, Rorschach, that whole moment, right? Yeah. Of Rorschach and Axe Factor 4 and all these. Los Crudos and yeah, yeah, like that whole scene. All these bands from the mid 90s playing at floor level, the ones who many of them like became like heavy metal chorus stuff, like Dillinger Escape Plan and stuff like that. One of the greatest live acts of our time. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, but, who were really interrogating that, but even that, you know, there's still this sheen that the performer gets. There's this resonance where the performer is standing in a space that is different, right? They're, they're not the audience. The, they're not, the audience isn't playing. <laughs> it's like, and so I think that division, it's, it shouldn't be about the elevation of the stage. It shouldn't, it's not that the performer is special. It's that their job is different, you know? And, 
And those jobs are, are valuable because together the audience and the performer make, make this amazing space that only exists in that space, right? Uh, but I think trying to eradicate that barrier completely is, uh, is a fool's errand. It's like the audience needs to be looking at the performer and saying, you're doing something that I can't, you know? And the performer needs to be doing something and going, here's a thing that you get something completely different out of than I get, right? Uh, it's like there's a gulf. And I don't think the performer even has a choice or the, like, you know, as much as you want to break it down, like, you know, the, the audience does it themselves. Like Ian McKay never put the star trip on anyone, but people definitely will put the star trip on Ian McKay, you know, myself yeah, included. Absolutely. Well, that's the, the thing is about like, he did try to make some effort yeah. to, to fix that. And it, it went exactly the other way. Yeah, it made him even <laughs> Although one of my hero. favorite, but he, the thing is like, I have a specific Ian McKay experience that you know that inspired me and helped me when I was just starting out at this, and I was like, you know, there was a thing in my gut that was like wanting to become arrogant, like wanting to, you know, sort of sort of wanting some of that. This space is set aside for me, but but when Fugazi would play, they didn't like venue security, so they would call local labels and ask, hey, does anybody want to work security? Does anybody want to work taking tickets? Right, and you get a ticket to the show if you do that, right? Mm-hmm. So I lived in Chicago. This is '95, right? And I worked at Touch and Go, right? And the word went out that Fugazi and Big Black, not Big Black, sorry, Fugazi and Shellac, are playing uh, at what was that venue? Somewhere on the north side. It wasn't. It wasn't the Fireside. It was. Uh, I can't think what it was. But they were playing a show. I was amped. I had never seen Shellac, and uh, and I had never seen Fugazi. And Red Medicine was just out, which is my favorite Fugazi record, and uh, and. Uh, and so, yeah, I'll, I'll go work security. I was with my girlfriend, who's now my wife, right? And, uh, and we both volunteered to do it so we could go to the show. <laughs> it's, like, pretty exciting. But she was sick, right? She had a bad cold and a fever, right? And we were working the, the dressing room door, right? Which I'm shocked that, like, if it was me, first question I would have is, like, you're not sick, are you? I can't get sick on this tour. <laughs> so, but the thing is, it's Ian McKay, right? And so we show up. And, uh, and we're just standing outside. All we're doing is standing outside the dressing room door so that people won't come in and bug people, right? And, uh, and we didn't introduce ourselves or anything. We just whoever the wrangler was like, okay, so you just stand here, and all you do is if somebody doesn't have a laminate, you tell them they can't come in. <laughs> okay, cool, right? And I, then Fugazi shows up, and, you know, we're all, me and my girlfriend are sitting there going, oh, there they are, sure enough. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and she's real sick. She's got a fever, and, uh, and he... He plugs in a, a kettle, right? And it was kind of funny because we thought of them as totally straight edge. And, and she says, is he drinking coffee? <laughs> I was like, and I was like, it could be. She's like, man, I, I could really use a cup of coffee because I feel so sick and I need to use a warm drink. And I said, well, you know, I'll ask him. What's he going you know, to do? I'm, I'm working for fucking free. Is, is, is he going to bug me? And I said, Mr. Mackay, I'm real sorry to bother you. My, my girlfriend is sick. She's wondering if there's coffee you have. And he said, no, no, it's, 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 it's herbal tea, but uh, here, have her come over here. And he showed her, you know, say, here's my kettle, help yourself, but if you want to go home, it's not a big deal. You know, it's like, I'm sure we can find somebody else to work at. And I was like, man, I bet I remember that story 25 years from now, and I do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and then even then, right, like with doing all that, like it's still, people will still like show up and try and get autographs, like people will still... Yeah, you can't get, there's no way around that. No way around it. Yeah, it's, it's almost like you're saying, it's like it's part of the relationship that in music for some reason. Yeah, it is. Well, it's in all performing arts. I think it's actually considerably worse for television and movie stars because it doesn't take place in the space of performance. Like you stand a chance with an audience of a fair number of them seeing you as a human being, right? Of understanding that you have flesh and bones 
and that your farts probably smell bad, you know, and, and all the things that are human, right? Yeah. But with people on TV and in movies, I mean, some of this is their fault because they go to such great lengths to make themselves look better than human, you know, that when you see them, it's like, well, that person who's beautiful every time I see them, <laughs> so, you know, uh, but, but I think it's considerably worse. I mean, I think they get, they, they get so much perfection. They get so many people imagining fake shit about them that by the time somebody sees them, they're not even talking from the same planet, you know? Yeah. Well, I think that, and that also happens to people in music too. Like, you know, like how much of that ego get is necessary just to deal with the criticism and the, the uh, oh, the, tonight, you guys were better last time you played here. Well, Tell yeah, you. you're talking about when you play Germany, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we, I love how that is like the universal. Everybody musicians. knows. Everybody yes. knows. Yes. Like the first time you toured Germany, especially back in the '90s when there wasn't some of the circuit, it was so shocking. It's like, wait. <laughs> I mean, I'm sleeping on a fucking floor tonight. Why did you tell me that you didn't think the show was that good? Keep it to yourself, man. <laughs> Just don't say anything. Come on. Seriously, why, why did you waste your time and mine? I mean, I get... <laughs> I, can, I can remember the first time I ever heard the best show stuff. Someone played me that thing that Tom and John did where uh, John is being interviewed by Tom as a German fanzine interviewer. Yeah, yeah. And that was like, I'm like, it felt like someone had reached into my mind. <laughs> and extracted a, a memory of a tour. No, the, the the line that I always remember from 95 when uh, me and Rachel went over in the spring and uh, and then by fall, Rachel and I weren't making music anymore and uh, and Peter, or she couldn't come on the tour, I guess it was, and uh, and Peter uh, had replaced her. Yeah. And we went over and we played some big show and, you know, I thought it was real good and guy comes in, hey, the last time you were here, uh, you had to... The bassist was a girl. I said, yeah, no, that's Rachel. She couldn't make it. Uh, she's got a day job. So, so Peter came in. He's, yeah, it was better with the girl. <laughs> and I was like, why? why? What is that? <laughs> you know, it's like I was, I'm like looking around and go, well, thank fuck Peter didn't come out to the table. Why, <laughs> <laughs> why have you never done a record called Better With The Girl? That's like well, a, what a way of putting it, too. It's what like, a way. I mean, you could, at the very least, you could. Yeah, I really liked the way she played. You know, it's like her style and her bass. She played a Dan Electra, you know, old one. But, but, uh, but yeah, it was like it's there's a level of brazenness that just makes it cut all the more. <laughs> yeah, it's bad. <laughs> um, well, I've kept you forever and not talked to you about any of the stuff that I wanted to talk. Well, about. Well, that's my get a couple if you got them written down. Do it because this is I I do this to interviewers where like no, you know dude, nobody is... gets a fucking word in edgewise. Well, I was gonna say this is the bread and butter of this show, so I will ask you a couple more questions, but at some point in the future. Will you come back for a part two, John? Because this has been any incredible. fucking time, dude. I, I enjoy my, I enjoy talking to you. I told you last uh, the conversation. I guess didn't didn't come out. It's like you are a good conversationalist. And I enjoy talking to you. Oh, I, I love talking to you. myself. this has been amazing. But yeah, I did I did have to ask you because this has been one of the one of the most interesting things ever to me is Ajax Records. Yes. How did that was? I believe your second singles on Ajax, right? That's right. Yeah, as, yeah. As Mountain Goats, when did that? How did that relationship come about? Because out of all the labels, I think that one, you go through it. Like, even like, you know, Sub Pop, they were in a perfect region, whereas Ajax Records, he went around the world and found amazing bands all different. Yeah. Well, he was, so Tim, um, he's from Alabama originally, I think, or at least that's where he went to college. So he would have been seeing like the Sex Clark Five and, okay. uh, and you know, uh, early bands making what what became indie rock which was sort of like in the same moment as REM but but was a little was was a lot sort of fussier you know uh 
and uh, and pretty interesting. That's what he would have been interested in. And then he goes to Chicago. I, I forget what puts him. Maybe he was actually from Indiana. I forget which it was, uh, whether he went to college in Indiana or college in Alabama. But anyway, he wants him in Chicago, uh, running a little record label, which people were starting to do, and doing a distro. Right, mm-hmm. and the distro is is how I I get how I learned about Ajax because Dennis from Shrimper I had put out a seven inch and also two tapes mm-hmm. right, and Dennis says hey Tim from Ajax he's loving your stuff and I was like what is Ajax he said well it's this record catalog he seems like a good guy and he wants to talk to you about maybe doing something uh you know and De- Dennis had a style of sort of trying to let you know. He would always pass along who was interested. He didn't want to talk shit about anybody, <laughs> but he would sort of let you know. I mean, he was really very, there was like a value for him. It's like, I'm not going to tell my artist that this person is bad or whatever, you know. But he would try to convey if it was somebody good. Yeah. That's what he would do is say, he seems like a good guy. He always pays me on time, you know, and uh, it seems like he really loves what you do. And so, um, so probably what happened, because I was pretty, I was a piece of work back then. <laughs> I was like, Probably I got his number and called him at some odd hour of the night because I seldom slept. Yeah. And I probably said, hey, hey, this is John from the Mountain Goats, man. I hear you were like the 7-inch. <laughs> so you probably just went fucking apeshit, right? And Tim's a very reserved guy. And he was like, yeah, no, I, I really like um, I like these ones. And then Dennis sent me a tape of a bunch of other stuff that you've made. Because it was a thing that people were doing that was like Dennis had a bunch of stuff I would have shared. And Dennis would have sent like 12 songs that weren't on anything which Tim was asking for, like, can I have this and this? And I was like, oh, no, that was like three months ago. <laughs> those, those songs will never be released, and indeed they never were. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but yeah, so he, so we talked on the phone, and uh, he said, yeah, and if you wanted to, to do something, you know, we could do a 7-inch. And I was like, great, fantastic. He said, well, what do you need for an advance? And I was like, advance? <laughs> I remember recording this stuff on a boombox. It's like, you know, but I, I could sequence it at Bob's, at Bob Durkee's, that cost $30. And he gave me fucking five hundred dollars advance. Yeah, right? yeah. This this might as well have been. I am buying you the car of your choice, right? Yeah. And I will pay your mortgage for a year or whatever. It was like I could not. Are you joking? Five hundred dollars? Are you joking? Right? Because I was a working man, man. It takes a while to make five hundred dollars. Absolutely. So, yeah. So I mean, this was a big shock to me that like, and not only that, after the record made back the five hundred dollars, like he was. Tim was an accountant before he was a, a label guy. He would be present with the statement, you know, and and let me know. Now I wasn't making massive residuals on this or anything, yeah. But it was real, you know. It was like, and that was like that is the American punk vibe is supposed to be bringing that sensibility to the business. We all share in the profits, you know. We we treat each other fairly, as we know. It in fact is not always that. In fact, yes. it's very seldom that. Right? Yes. And so many like there are punk legends who. Absolutely, everybody knows. Do not do business with him. You will never get paid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, under any circumstances, and you won't even know how many records you've sold. But you'll see your records in every store around the country, and you'll wonder why you never saw a statement. Forever, take your phone calls. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. But you can't find him. So, uh, but Tim was the exact opposite of that. Tim was like a fair businessman who was releasing this music from people who I think had sent it to him for distro. Right, uh, and that's how he got into the New Zealand stuff. Is I think the Expressway guys were sending stuff in for distro. And he wound up visiting, and he was re-releasing these this kind of punishment records that I think I don't know how he would have heard them in the first place because those were obscure ass records. But uh, but he reissued this kind of punishment records, and he put out the Peter Jeffries Electricity record, and that was you know all that all that stuff. The mid the other story of the mid nineties that doesn't get told is like the the New Zealand scene and how incredibly creative it was. Absolutely, I feel New Zealand is like 
the most underrated music scene. Like that flying nun stuff into the nineties stuff you're talking about is just like what a holy jeez. It's like Flying Nun Expressway and there's one other. I can't think of what the other major but I mean throw a dart at these bands. The Verlaines are incredible. Yes. The Google Purple was really good. Yeah. Um the Bats of course who went up on Mammoth. Um I mean it's all of them. It, it, tall dwarfs, right? Uh I mean uh, yeah, so many. That's it's it's unreal. But like and that's the thing, right? Like with Ajax, like he put out all that New Zealand stuff, but then you know, to put out Mountain Goats, obviously what you would go on to do and what you were, I'd already done a little bit at that point, but like that's really early on. And he puts out like the first two LPs, I think, are on Ajax, three LPs. No, like. The first, but, uh, the, so he did a seven inch and he did, um, he did. Two 12 inches. Soapy Loading Machine and he did Nothing for Juice. And, uh, and then Full Force Gelsberg was Trans Syndicate or was Emperor Jones rather. Yeah. Um, and then I recorded the Corners Gambit and I sent it to Tim and it was getting harder and harder to sell records. And he said, Hey, if you want me to release this, I will. But if you should find somebody else to do it, I would just as soon. He didn't think it would sell very well. And, uh, and I was like, I'm not going to make you release anything you don't want to. So, <laughs> so, uh, I mean, we didn't part company, but he, I, the thing is, I'm now very fond of this record. It is like, you know, you turn down the corners again, but that was a good fucking record. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it also, I got to say, it did not blow up the scene when it came out. It was, it was a very hard time to, to get attention back then. But he also, and that was kind of around the time I think he started winding down the label too, right? Well, he wound, so I don't want to talk out of school, but he did wind down the label several times. Okay. <laughs> so, so he would, he, I think he would get frustrated and say, you know, I can't do this anymore. He was working fucking 16 hour days at this shit. And, uh, and, and the part, that end of things, there's no glamour in it at all. Right? Yeah. There's nothing. You are sitting in a building surrounded by records that have lost all their luster and glamour and they're just like fucking get these out of here. It's in your house. It's, he didn't, Ajax never had a warehouse. Um, so it's like, it's your house. It's been taken over by your work. You're never free of it, right? You are surrounded yeah. by work 24 hours a day. And, uh, and yeah, it's like, and you have to go to clubs. It's part of your deal. And you know, that, that gets tiring too. And so, yeah, he, he did, I think he wound down not long after that. And he rebooted as three beads of sweat, uh, for a while, but his, a lot of the stuff that Tim was really into that are very, very good records, it was very hard for them to find their audience. It's like a run-on. He put out records by run-on. Totally great band. Uh, but it was hard to, to tell people how to think about run-on. Yeah. You know, it's like run-on is a, a, a rock band with jazz chops who are not playing jazz rock. You know, and so, like, that's a, that's a, that's a hard one to frame. Well, and also it's like, and the Sonics he was putting out is all over the map too, right? And it's yep. it's a lot harder to be a label that's just putting out good music rather than a specific genre, I guess. Yeah, that's the thing, and that's one of the things that sucks the most about it, right? Is like you can't if your if your label aesthetic is well, we release stuff that is good. Yeah. Right? Then people yeah. people want a brand. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And uh, they when Sub Pop, you know, was releasing all stuff that sounded grungy, that helps them establish themselves. And when Sub Pop tries to do other stuff in the early 2000s everybody says oh well they don't really have an identity now <laughs> yeah know? yeah well that, that, that was the part that nearly killed the label too right those years yeah except that then one of the things that they were sort of doing we don't we like is this iron and wine record so that did okay for them that did okay <laughs> <laughs> uh john i i've kept you far too long and i could keep you forever um but as i say you will come back for a part two one day i hope well you i hope you will someday be on my long threatened podcast that i will never ever do i would but be I keep, honored but i keep mentioning doing a podcast about live albums. 
Oh, that would be amazing. I'm very into this concept. <laughs> I keep mentioning this interview like, so I can maybe goad myself into doing it like I have the time. But, but, uh, well, but I really want to because I've been obsessed with live albums since I was a child. But that is another question for another day. So. Well, I was going to say it gives you something to do on the road. That's my one word of encouragement for you about these podcasts and touring. It is a great a back of the bus, back of the van time filler of just sitting and listening and editing a podcast. Huh. Interesting. That's a, that, is, that is a thought. Yeah. I will I'll put that in my hip pocket. Okay, well and I, and I will put my Hun's uh suggestion in my pocket ready ready to go when you Yeah, do I, this. I, I, honestly the idea of, of doing a conversation like that with you would be a fucking blast. Oh, it'd be so <laughs> one much one of these days. It'd be so much fun. Well, this has been so much fun, John. Thank you so much for doing this. A joy. Thank you for having me and I hope to see you out there sometime. Absolutely. John for coming on the show. That was fucking glorious. John will be back. You heard it right there. John will be back for a part two. And to be honest with you, I even hung out with him and saw him the other night. And uh, we didn't record it. We just chilled because it was fun to talk to. A fun, fun guy to talk to. And we will be talking to him a lot more, I hope. A lot more. Speaking of talking a lot more, as I mentioned to you before, I'm going to be turning the gas up around here in anticipation for the wrestlers coming out. So next week on the show, it's going to be a bit of a marathon because as you know, the the week that the the wrestlers comes out, it's a huge week. It is a massive, massive week because that weekend in Las Vegas, it is the ginormous wrestling convergence, double or nothing. So there'll be a lot of wrestling fans there. Uh, I'm very excited about that. So I'll be there to do, you know, stuff for that stuff, obviously. But the real reason I'm in Las Vegas that weekend is because it's punk rock bowling. Punk rock bowling is one of the best weekends every year. I've gotten to be there one other time, and believe me, some of my craziest stories are from those 48 hours in Las Vegas at punk rock bowling. And to celebrate punk rock bowling happening again this year, we're going to have a lot of surprises starting off next week. We're going to have, uh, you know what, I, I say this a lot. This one is legitimately top top 10 Turn Out of Punk episodes for me. Youth Brigade, Sean and Mark Stern from Youth Brigade are on the show next week. And Youth Brigade are obviously a legendary band. Youth, Youth Brigade, California, like the, the Youth Brigade that actually put in a lot of records. Uh, you know, they're an unbelievable band. I've always loved their music, been a big fan of them. But it was only when I kind of sat down to do this interview that I realized that, fuck, this band is the connective tissue in punk and hardcore. This band brings together so many disparate punk worlds. Oh, my God, is it a good one next week. There is so much good stuff in it. We talk about bands next week that have never come up on the show before. Maybe they've come up on footnotes. Maybe I've tried to bring them up to people, but no one's been able to kind of go on them. Next week on the show, the Stern Brothers go. It is a fun fun episode. And then throughout next week, I'm going to be putting up some surprises, some punk rock bowling related surprises. I'm going to try and uh, it's going to be a good lead up as we head towards the release of the wrestlers and towards the punk rock bowling weekend in Las Vegas. There's also tons of other stuff going on. More on that after party I mentioned earlier next week uh, it's been announced so if you want to find out the details i'm sure you can find out online but 
whew, I want I want there to be more details announced before I, I start talking about it here because I'm excited for that after party. Ooh, it's going to be such a good weekend. Oh, it's going to be such a good weekend. That is in Las Vegas on May the 20th, 25th, I think 20, 24th, the Friday, the 22nd is the Wednesday, so the Thursday be 23rd, Friday be the 24th. So 24th, 25th, and 26th, I believe, is what we're looking at here. And, oh, man. I'm as excited as you are about this thing. There's so much good stuff going on. And then I'm going to go to Primavera Sound, and we're playing Primavera Sound. Then we're going to, and then I go, then I go to Vancouver for some something I'll be giving you some details about real soon. And then back to Portugal. So it's going to be, you know, a, a jet-setting kind of few weeks. But, oh, thank you for bearing with me, everyone. Thank you for putting up with the depression and the exhaustion because it's been a fight. You know, it's been a long, long fight to get this show made and get it out there and and now it's just about here and I'm really excited for you to see it. I'm very, very excited for you to see it. Check out the trailer I put up on my Instagram. Uh, hopefully it's circulating around on other people's Instagrams and stuff and uh, yeah, that's it. Uh, go out there and make your own culture because no one's going to do it if you aren't and no one's going to do it better than you are. So go out there and do that. Sign your organ donor cards because what's the point in holding on to those things when you don't need them anymore and they can help someone else? So sign your organ donor cards and uh, stay safe and, and fuck fascism and I will see you next week.